Welcome to Urban Foundry. All opinions expressed by Andrew Urban, Paige O'Neill, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Collier's International, Inc. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Collier's International may maintain positions in the properties discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Urban Foundry podcast, your go-to source for urban real estate news and conversations. I'm Andrew Urban. And I'm Paige O'Neill, and we will be your co-hosts as we explore the future of downtown real estate. This This is is Urban Urban Foundry. Foundry. Scott, welcome to the Urban Foundry podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Awesome, man. Awesome. We're here with our beautiful producer, Paige O'Neill. Obviously, you guys know each other pretty well. Not my sister. Not your sister. That is important disclosure to make before I said that. Is it weird? You know, I always find you have young kids like me and my wife have young kids. That's right. And when you see your wife without the kids, like outside of like the home element, it's kind of odd for a second, right? Because you're like, well, it's different. I'm in her world today. (laughs) So yeah, she's the boss. She's the boss at home. She's the boss at work today, which is that's right. normally I'm the boss at work. (laughs) So there you go. You heard it here first. There you go. There you go. Well, today I have an extra special guest in the studio. Scott O'Neill is the director of interior construction for Bolt, a division of OfficeWorks. OfficeWorks is a minority owned business and a certified dealer of Miller Knoll dirt construction systems, and Allure glass walls. They have been creating great places to work, learn, and heal for over 35 years. Prior to OfficeWorks, Scott worked in the commercial real estate brokerage arm of Cushman Wakefield and is an Indianapolis native. Scott attended DePaul University and earned a JD from Indiana University School of Law. Welcome, Scott. Hey, thanks. Great intro there. Yeah, I try my best. Sounds pretty impressive. Sounds very impressive. All right, so how does a guy with a JD end up in office furniture. Let's start there. Wow. That's uh, how much time do we have? As much as you want. We got- um, that, that's a great question. So the best place to start there is talking about something that my dad hooked me up with when I was in law school, knew a few lawyers and said, Hey, I think you need to go talk to these guys to figure out if you actually want to be a lawyer. And those guys said, it's great. You know, not every day I love being a lawyer at work, but mm. the fact that I am a lawyer is something that I really enjoy. I said, great, you know, let's, let's try this out. Two years into law school, have a little internship here with a law firm and very quickly realized that maybe that's not going to be my long-term passion. <laughs> so at that point, we, uh, we had some sunk costs with- yeah, the, uh, Too late, right? Two, two, two years in, you're not stopping after that. So I went ahead and got my degree and got into real estate. And funnily enough, while I was in real estate, I actually ran into one of those same lawyers that I had lunch with, no longer a lawyer. I said, hey, man- <laughs> What happened? What happened? You told me it was great. You told me it was great. What's going on? So, no, I think if I had known all the different aspects of law that exist that I know today, maybe I still would be a lawyer, but partner track at a at a law firm doing, you know, insurance cases, uh, insurance defense, not something I was interested in and and decided to pivot from there. So, you but then you went into brokerage, so right? Into, More entrepreneurial. Went into commercial real estate right. brokerage. I had a few few connections in the industry and and timing was right that some folks needed a kind of a junior guy to mentor. So, I went and did that for 5 or 6 years and then OfficeWorks being a minority-owned business, I'm Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. My father and a few partners started that business back in the late 80s. He was kind of transitioning out and said, "Hey, do you want to come learn this business from myself and my partners?" And I said, "That sounds really interesting." So, kind of a I'm a team sports guy, so it was kind of a, a team sports play, really interested in figuring out how to take a group from point A to point B and be successful doing that. And when you joined, what, what year did you join OfficeWorks? So I joined in January of 2019. So I went up on what, my th- fourth full year? You know, it's interesting. So you joined OfficeWorks, you had this interesting progression, right? January 2019, probably everything seems great, right? 
And then like within what, less than a, like a year later, ah, the world yeah, changed, yeah. right? We all went through it. <laughs> yeah. It, it was an interesting time to a try and learn the right. commercial furniture business. We call it contract furniture. And then we also, at the same time, started up a new arm of our business where we were trying to get into more architectural products and interior construction. That's with the allure glass walls and the dirt construction system, both of which are somewhat of a premium item. So as the world decided that there was a little bit of a recession and then COVID hit, mm-hmm. it was an interesting time to be the sales guy out knocking down doors, trying to figure out who's going to pay a dollar more for something that is a little bit better, but at a time when Every conversation, I'm sure in real estate as well, was how can we save money? So walk me through the divisions real quick. I know I mentioned them in the intro. Obviously, Miller Knowles, the combination of Herman Miller, Knoll Furniture. That's right. Right. Two huge names in the office, just furniture in general, design in general. Yeah. Little few people know I'm a big vintage Herman Miller collector. Actually. modern. Yeah. And I've for years been doing it. I have an amazing collection that I've built up. Obviously, I've always respected Knoll. As a collector, it hasn't always been my style, but you know, I did recently buy a new, uh, a vintage Barcelona chair. Nice. So, hey, very well, cool. we're, we're with the right group here. Not I know. Yeah. I kind of want to come take a tour of your house. It's pretty cool. I know. It's a bit of a museum. Saying that. A lot of them are museum pieces. So, I, mean, I have a second generation Herman Miller Eames chair from 1962. Ah, with the ottoman and everything. Ottoman, down feathers, original leather, beautiful patina. That Beautiful. is, you are now a VIP at Officeworks forever. That is, that, I mean, not many people even know that that is something that's cool. Yeah. So that, yeah, that puts you on a different level design wise. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so Miller and Knoll combined in the last two years, Herman Miller purchased Knoll. And, and that's kind of like Chevy and Ford. That's right. I think kind of buying each yeah. other. And, right. And maybe considering you just mentioned an Eames lounge, maybe I'd say like Mercedes and BMW. Or sure. Like that's that. true. That's a good point. The price point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so the the two contract furniture brands with the deepest design heritage combined. So yeah. we now have the ability to offer our clients 19 brands within that family where we know we're going to have really good fit and finish, really good quality, on-time deliveries, and a really, really deep design heritage. So I think Miller Knoll references themselves something as as one of the largest design-minded companies in the world. So they don't even necessarily look at themselves as a furniture manufacturer the same way that a real estate broker doesn't look at, them, at themselves as a leasing agent. They're more of a consultant to their right. customers. So it's a really exciting time for our business. Been a little bit of turbulence in two you know, multi-billion dollar companies merging, just like anybody would expect. But the future is very bright for folks that are hooked up with Miller & Nolan. It's an exciting time to be representing them in the market. And so I'm guessing Officeworks probably started off with more tr- traditional furniture at some point, dirt wall, allure, right? How do those fit in with the overall family? Yeah. So the the whole future looking outlook, if that's a phrase, for the contract furniture world is how can you use the infrastructure that you already have as a business and add more value for your clients? So what does that mean? That means an interior construction system like dirt, where we're using prefabricated wall systems and digital technology to make really great spaces for folks. That means carrying something like a lure glass walls when someone's looking for a little bit nicer fit and finish and, and performance of their glass walls, which are just about on every nicely designed office around now. And then also things like workplace services or workplace strategy. So at Officeworks, we've got the furniture teams. We've got the interior construction team, which we've branded as Bolt Construction. Uh, that's the team I lead. And, and we separately branded that so that if we're working with a competitive firm, we're a kind of a separate group. We're not there pushing furniture. We have expertise in interior construction and architectural products. And then on the workplace strategy side, we've got a group led by Patty Clark, who's a, a long tenured workplace strategist here in, in central Indiana, so that when clients come to us, we can say, 
the only thing worse than spending a, a ton of money on furniture <laughs> that you don't want to spend is by spending it and not having a plan and doing it poorly because the stakes are so high when it comes to making great spaces for your teammates and for your employees these days. So that's when we bring in workplace strategy. So really the future of contract furniture is is not necessarily trying to step on a general contractor or a designs firm. Right. I was going to say, where's that line, right? Yeah. We're, we tried to be collaborative with all them. So bolt construction, not a, not a general contractor. Even if we're selling directly to the client, we tell the general contractor, put money in your budget to manage us like a sub because we want to work in that process workplace strategy. We don't take work away from the design firms. We collaborate with them to make sure that the outcomes are really, really good for their clients. So that's where we, we try and provide value and, and make sure that if you are spending a dollar with us, it's a dollar well spent. Talk, talk to me a little bit about, I know I've experienced this in the last, you know, since COVID where clients come to you and they say, I know I need to do something, but I don't know what that is. So and I really think about what, what you said about workplace strategy. Right. And I, I'm a big believer in kind of keeping that piece separate from architecture and design, because I think a lot of times there's biases. And I think architects are sometimes more artistic and not analytical where those things, you know, I think they have to complement each other. They have to be able to talk. But are you seeing more clients kind of coming in going, hey, I know I need to do something, but I don't even know where to start. And how are you guys addressing that? Uh, that's I don't want to say every client, but that's <laughs> that's almost it, it's kind of like uh starting a team and you say, I'd rather have someone with no experience so I can coach them versus someone that has a bunch of bad habits. So when people come to us and say, we've got a budget, we know that we need to invest time, talent, and treasure in our space to make it an amazing place for our, our teammates to come. And so they want to come. What do we do? That's a great conversation for us to have. That's where we like to start. So that's where we go through our discovery process, where we bring in all the teams, uh, all the different silos within OfficeWorks and have a very consultative conversation. So Part of that is why we have recently upgraded our showroom so we can kind of walk the talk and lead from the front and show an example of uh, we had the same issue and and here's where we went with it. Another big part of that conversation is pulling in all the research from our large manufacturers. So mm. I just mentioned previously that, that Miller Knoll thinks of themselves more as a design-minded company than a furniture manufacturer. Well, what that means is they have tons of research from all of their clients all over the world saying, here's what we're seeing right now. Here's what we saw last year. Here's what we're seeing right now. Here's what we think the future is going to hold. And so instead of coming into a furniture dealer and worrying about if the chair should be black or gray or white or which desk you like, let's have a planning conversation instead of a product conversation. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, uh, I'm going to look around and make sure none of the other partners of our, our business are, <laughs> are watching. The top three manufacturers all make really good furniture. Yeah. And uh, Officeworks doesn't make that furniture. Scott O'Neill doesn't make that furniture. Miller Knoll makes that furniture. So our business, um, because we don't actually make anything, is all about customer service and is all about making sure that the knowledge and experience we have over 35 years is downloaded to each of our clients. So those conversations usually go something like, hey, Officeworks team, we have no idea what we want to do. Where do we go from here? And And we'll say something like, well, the first place to start is something like 89. I'm making up these numbers, but they're close. Yeah. I'm not the stats guy. 89% of, of folks want to control when they work. 93% of folks want to control where they work. So if we're starting there, that's maybe a different conversation than, hey, I need 250 cubicles um, and three private offices for our executive team. That's a really easy conversation, but you're not going to get a great work product at the end, of the end of the day. So focusing on planning and research more than product is usually how we start that process with all of our, our teams pulled together to leverage the three or four different areas of expertise that we have. That's interesting. You talked about your guys' showroom renovations and when did you start that? 
And then you said you had a lot of the similar questions that all your clients have. How did you guys address that internally? How long did it take? Oh gosh, we started the planning process, I want to say maybe two years ago. And that wasn't necessarily with a hard date of when we want a new space, but it's just general conversations. Our our organization is similar to many other organizations out there in that we have 22-year-old females, we've got 65-year-old males, and we've got everything in between. So how do you make an inviting environment that provides the functionality you need to get your work done and be efficient, but also provides a place that you want to come because you have the choice not to come there if you, if you don't want to. Um, and then on top of that, we have to show all the different products that we sell. We have to show all the different theories that we want to, uh, educate our clients on and our customers on. And then in the middle of that process, Miller, Herman Miller and Noel decided to merge. So that threw a whole nother wrench into the process there. But really the way we started was by doing some surveys and by doing some information gathering for all of our team members. So without getting into the details of that, in a perfect world, if you could work anywhere, where would you work? And the outcome of that was a lot of people like working at their desk where they've got a double screen or a triple screen and they can be really efficient. A lot of people want to work at a cafe table down in a break room. A lot of people want to work at just a, a couch with a coffee table. So that's what we provided. We've provided a, dump, a bunch of different settings and a bunch of different ways for people to be efficient with their time, whether that's individually or collaboratively. Gosh, we started construction a month and a half ago, two months ago, and we're just now wrapping up all the architectural product wall systems, things that we sell going into our space here for the next couple of weeks. And so when do you think it's going to be done? Ready for the public? So that's a very complicated question. Of course no, it is. So uh, <laughs> with all the different pieces of furniture we have, we, as you can imagine, we didn't just get the normal chair in black or the normal B chair in white. We got a bunch of really custom stuff. So we've got some stuff. Uh, furniture will be trickling in all through the fourth quarter. And I think we're going to have a big open house and a big kind of grand opening sometime in the first quarter of 2023. What metrics were you guys looking at as you were planning this, right? What metrics were you looking to try to move? You said pallets of posture, right? People can feel like they're empowered to work wherever, however, within the space as they want. But what other kind of numbers or metrics or goals did you guys set out as you were starting this process? Yeah. So I think um, historically or traditionally, and when I was in real estate, we ran into this all the time. How many employees do you have? Let's put a per square foot metric on those employees. That's how many square feet you need. Because we weren't moving buildings and we weren't adding space to our building, we didn't necessarily go through that type of quantitative process. The process we did go through was making sure that we have all the different appropriate settings. So if you like working down in the kitchen hospitality area and you want the office space, your office space to feel like a boutique hotel, we've got that for you. If you want to work in a private teams room where you need to get away from your desk and go take a virtual call, we've got that. If you just want your normal benching, we've got that. If you want a quick touchdown space, we've got that. So really our process was more about elevating the, the design, the fit and finish, simplifying the feel of our space. So um, going from something really bu busy to something more simple and Scandinavian kind of, even though mm -hmm. Scandinavian really wasn't the, the inspiration, that's kind of what it's, it's simplified in that sort of way. And then on top of that, thinking through things that are different in how people work these days. So historically or traditionally, maybe it was all of the executives get a private office. Everybody else is in a cubicle or a workstation. Well, what happens when you've got six people on a team's call at the same time in their open office? So while folks might be adding more settings and maybe shrinking the personalized space you have within your office, you're then adding all of these private rooms that you can go leverage to do that heads down work, to do that virtual call, 
to, to touch down with your two or three team members. And really what that very simply, what the output of that was is that we have many more meeting spaces of varied sizes for our people to use at any time. And you didn't have a goal though, right? Like when it comes to occupancy, you guys weren't saying, Hey, we want the organization to be here 70% of the time or 80% of the time, right? There wasn't, I mean, you want to encourage it. You want to build an environment where people want to choose that, but there wasn't a specific goal that said, Hey, we want our employees 65% of the time in the space at some point in the day. Yeah, we, we didn't have a hard goal like that. It, that's an interesting question. I was actually at a golf outing with our president yesterday and we were kind of laughing that he said, you know, we were doing this whole hybrid thing before hybrid was even a term that people use. And I said, well, what do you mean? Cause that was before I was in the organization. Mm-hmm. He said, our, you know, our long-term thinking has been the number one goal is to get, get your stuff done and be a good team member. The rest will take care of itself. Now, sometimes when you have hybrid work, folks might take advantage of that. And that's when you need to have a conversation about how we really see this working. But we didn't have a hard goal. Our hard goal was we tell clients that if you're going to spend a dollar, make sure you're spending it well so that you can't, if you want to bring people to the office, they want to come. And that was our goal. Our goal was for all of our team members to be really excited. Our goal was for our customers to be really excited when they come. Our goal was for designers that we come, that we collaborate to come in the space and want to be there. And beyond that, it's kind of the rest will take care of itself. So we are having those discussions about what does hybrid work mean for each of our teams. But we think we've done such a good job with our office space that that conversation will probably be uh, more of a side conversation than a main conversation. I feel like that's kind of where most of the country is right now is trying to figure out how hybrid or remote works well for their company. As a nation, we kind of just went through the great resignation process or cycle and figuring out how to come back from that, how to keep people in the building, what experiences can you create for your employees when they're coming to work. It's kind of the big question that everyone is trying to answer and trying to recruit people like you and us to help them figure that out. And, and the easy answer used to be free snacks, free food, sure. free coffee. Everyone loves perks. food. That, that it gets old really quick. Um, it seems like that's not moving the metrics despite what people are saying, right? No, no. The word I hear is convenience. Yeah. People, you know, the, the more barriers there are to get to the office, the less people want to go. I think that totally makes sense. And in a world where you can get on Amazon and get three external monitors and a dock for your laptop to your house the next day, if you don't have a better technological or more efficient setup at your office space, why would anybody come there? Now, obviously you need to collaborate. But there are certain things that aren't check the box that you really need to live. And there are certain things you just need to check the box to just get to that basic common denominator. And things like a technology setup are, are one of them. You can't have folks having a less efficient setup at work than they do at home. Do you feel more of your clients, do you feel like each of the project, each project is less homogenous than it was before? Where I felt like in most of my career, it was especially being primarily an office guy. You know, there was ratios and planning and this and this type of organization. You could almost predict down to a T as a practitioner, like what kind of space. And I feel like in a lot more now, companies are going like, okay, what is what is our culture? And then what is the physical space? How does it manifest itself differently to encourage those behaviors? Are you seeing more customization or is there certain trends that are just generally emerging across the board? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think you hit it right on the head. I think our, our top furniture uh, consultants and account executives would say something to the effect of we're spending less time evaluating a specific desk or do you need a sit to stand desk or what kind of chair do you want versus having a larger conversation about the way you want your space to feel. 
and spending more time planning the things that visually seem interesting and design wise seem interesting. So in the contract furniture world, there's what we call your, your kind of main furniture, the workstations, the desks, the hoteling private office setup. And then there's what we call ancillary. That would be the stuff that you have in a lobby, uh, in your break room, in a hospitality area, basically all the stuff that's going to make it feel like a boutique hotel lobby. And as an industry, the spend on those mainline things is trending down. The spend on those ancillary things is trending up. So, I mean, you're exactly right. It's becoming less, we need 150 cubes in black or white or gray. And it's more, here's how we want our space to feel. And here's the, for lack of a better term, the vibe that we want people to feel when they come into our space. And that's really what we tried to do with our space. The folks that designed it, I was kind of laughing with one of them and and we put a, a really, really large and really cool and different architectural timber uh, piece in our lobby. We've got a 30 foot high lobby. We put that in there and, and I kind of said, Hey, walk me through how you thought that up. And it was as simple as we wanted someone to walk through your front door and know that they were in the right spot. They, we don't have to say you've got the best chair. You've got the best desk. You just want to walk in and have them understand that you've got their back. You're going to lead them in the right way. And if you do this for your own space, you can do that for our space. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking for in their, in their workspace, not necessarily a specific thing, but a general feel. I would say as someone who started in the middle of COVID with a new company with a lot of independent contractors who aren't forced to be in the office, the culture here is great, but how different would it feel if every team wasn't in the silos of their own cubicle? So there's on average, how many, Andrew, 10 people on our floor yeah. on a given day? And we're most of them. And we're, our team is most of yeah. them, but if the walls came down and we were able to like intermingle with other people, what would that do for the culture? No, I mean, I think you, you know, Paige, you don't have the baseline, but it, culture was, has changed for our organization. Brokerage, at least our firm here really values collaboration. I think about any given year and Paige, you know, you help our team manage all of our ops and all the deal bookings. I mean, think about how many different brokers across our entire shop that we do deals with every single year. We almost touch everybody like on our brokerage floor and that's 35 brokers. Like our team does almost a deal with every single broker every single year somehow, which is kind of amazing, right? And that's kind of part of the Summit Realty Collier's kind of culture that has embodied. You guys have kind of always had that culture. Always. Yeah. But we do notice that there are more silos and clicks. I'm just being 100% candid than there ever has been before. Because we have some teams that come in, some teams that don't, and there definitely has been more restriction, more angst amongst teams, things like that, than there ever has been. And I think the common denominator in that is the vast majority of our producers are not coming in on a consistent basis. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody wants to read the Wall Street Journal or, or whatever publication is out there that's quoting an exec from Google or an exec from Apple or somebody from Microsoft saying, None of our engineers, none of our software engineers want to come in. Everybody can work remote. Customer service, don't want to come in. We can work remote. That's a niche of what the Correct. entire country's workforce is. And we've lived that for the last two months. So when we did our showroom renovation, we made the strategic decision that we want to go as fast as we can to make this space better. And to do that, we have to send everybody home for about two months instead of maybe phasing things where the whole mm -hmm. project will take longer. And I, I think candidly, what we've learned is that was much more negatively impactful, impactful to our culture and to our efficiency than anyone thought. We thought it was going to be just like COVID. Get your stuff done. We'll do Teams calls. It'll be fine. That's not 
how it's <laughs> how it's happened. The, the business is still going strong. Everybody's getting their stuff done, but happiness engagement mm-hmm. is at an all time low for these this little two month period, and it's been really educational or enlightening for me because it's one of those things where you're telling your clients something all the time and you believe it to be true, but until you actually (laughs) live it now, I'm going, no, this is, you know, I'm not selling you something. I'm telling you the real information that I know in six months, if you take my advice, you're going to be a really happy person. And if you don't, you maybe won't be very happy with the, with the outcome. So it's been very interesting for us that, you know, I I love the, the ability to wake up on a Monday morning and say, you know what? I'm not feeling it today. I've got heads down work. I'm making cold calls. I'm putting quotes together, whatever it is. I want to stay at home and do that. Or I've got a call at four. I'm going to leave at three, get on that call at four, be done at five and be home for my family Mm -hmm. uh, to be a dad. That flexibility is great, but you need an HQ. You need a clubhouse. You need somewhere where everyone's gathering and having that shared experience. And I think that's become even more um, visible and important to us as we've lived it over the last two months. Well, and I think a lot of our jobs as advisors, right, has really changed. I I joke, I use a lot more of my business school background in organizational behavior, HR, because when we're talking with clients, we're uncovering, and for some of them, bigger cultural issues that are exposed when there's not that camaraderie. You know, I kind of compare it to a locker room. And I know it's very kind of like out of vogue now to talk kind of this male, you know, like girls have locker rooms, locker room, like, you know, Hey guys, we're all in a team. We're going to call a play and like all those kind of old school acronyms for business, but they resonate a lot. And I think, you know, if you don't have that camaraderie, right. That ability to say, man, you know, just talk with somebody about, and this headache is going on. Right. If you're by yourself at home five days a week, I, I don't know how you stay engaged, you know, with others and, and get the soft, subtle, social interactions and bonds trust yeah i was gonna say and if you're if you're at home five days a week what's keeping you from leaving that job to go find another job right there is 100 there's no barrier it's uh pay me pay me more and i'll leave yeah and and you know us sales guys real estate brokers (laughs) people might think we're always chasing the dollar if that's what you're doing, you're going to be incredibly unhappy in your job, no matter how much money you're making and how many customers you're making happy. Uh, there has to be a larger purpose. And if you have an employee that's only there because they're making X, that's going to be a tough relationship for you. And, and yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. You got to have people into the office. And I, I, what I'm really excited about, I know my little team and the folks that I see in and out of the office while we kind of have a skeleton crew are all ready to get back in the office. When can we get temporary desking set up? When can I come in? When can I do this? I'm really excited to get the feel for the rest of the folks that I haven't seen because my instincts are telling me that even the youngest, what we were just saying is a Gen Z, Gen Y, whatever, whatever the young folks are that that I still think I am, but I no longer. Yeah. You quickly realize you're not my mind's eye. I'm still 18. Well, you're not, you're not, but um, I'm really excited to see what they have to say because I think their feedback is going to be the same. You know, I don't want to be here five days a week, but we got to have what I'm calling a clubhouse. We got to have an HQ. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think more companies are moving to that. Talk to me. You guys do a lot in the healthcare space. What has changed there? Deep breath. Um, you know, the, the where I'll start there is, is having two young daughters. Paige sitting across from me right now is probably inside of her mind, rolling her eyes. When we had our second daughter, I was sitting in the, in the hospital room at a confidential hospital system. We won't, <laughs> we won't blow them up on the podcast. I was sitting there going, same thing I just talked about, the workplace experience with your own, having your own clubhouse, going, wow, 
I was, we were selling healthcare people that you need to spend a dollar more to make this a little bit nicer. And then you get into a room where they haven't done that and you go, that's not just a sales pitch. This is, that's real. This is not a great experience. I'm so sorry you were uncomfortable during that. Well, hey, we can, we can help out. We can help out the folks that are actually doing the work as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, healthcare is a totally different animal than corporate or higher ed. Um, so at our company, we have specialists who have years and years of experience with healthcare work, and they focus on large hospital systems mm-hmm. from all the way down to medical office buildings and dermatologists and single practitioners. So it's just a, a totally different ballgame. The codes are different. The you know you walk into a doctor's office, you've got three different sizes of chairs because they want to be inclusive and make sure that Correct. everyone of of uh, any background can feel like a valued uh, patient. And so the the Standards are different. The codes are different. The finishes are different. So it's a very, it's a very complicated world. And I think over the last seven or eight years where we've really, maybe 10 years where we really dove into it, we've learned a ton. Um, everything from the right chairs to spec, the right chairs not to spec, the right fabrics that will hold up all the way to installing furniture in a corporate office space is much different than installing furniture in a functioning and working hospital space. Right. And, and that's been a, a really important lesson to learn for us. Yeah. And I find it curious. We've done some healthcare related projects, our team recently. And, you know, it's interesting because you have an additional kind of layer, right? There's patient, then there's clinical practice, and then there's, there is office and administrative space. You know, right. I mean, there's people processing the claims, billing, all those things that you get with a normal company, right? An HR department, all those. And I think it's interesting to see, you know, when we talked to users early on, you know, the, the question was, what's the impact of telehealth? Right. Is this really and it seems like overall the theorem that's occurred is, you know, there's there's going to be a fit, probably more utilization of telehealth in general, but it's really for follow up. It's really for tactical things that don't require that in person, you know, we'll call it bedside manner. Sure. Right. And and naturally, you know, you can't get a good picture of a rash from a Zoom call. Right. Sometimes a dermatologist, as your example goes, be an uh, awkward Zoom call. Yeah, yeah like, that's what I was yeah, like, trying to show your phone. Like, hey, let me set up rash. my tripod. <laughs> yeah, let me pull down my pants. Yeah, and show you. Uh, you know, um, but it's interesting to see because they do have a lot of office space, right? Just like any other large company, they do. And, and I'm curious, you know, to see because there's a bit in their organizations, right? There's people that legitimately cannot work hybrid or remote because of the fact they have to see, talk to, interact with, with patients, right. Or do processes. And then, you know, you do have what you consider more typical office jobs that kind of fit in the category of every other major corporation. And I can imagine that there's maybe more cultural friction with some of that sometimes. It's definitely two totally siloed conversations, the clinical space versus the uh, administrative space. Um, the administrative space, you're right. It, it becomes much more like a corporate office environment that, that we know about and we've been doing for 35 years. The clinical space, um, that discussion becomes much more complicated. Um, these, these large projects have many layers um, to break through. So you've got lots of times you've got a general contractor that has expertise, expertise in building a hospital. You've got an out-of-town a very large architect, a national architect. You've got an in-town architect. Then you've got a bunch of different subs. Maybe you've got a property management company that runs the hospital. And then also you've got the, the healthcare system employees and workers themselves. And everybody wants their voice to be heard. And mm-hmm. everybody wants to feel heard. And everybody has an idea 
uh, about how things should go because, hey, I've been sitting here drawing blood for the last 15 years. If I could choose the way the space was set up, I could make it way better. Everybody has a thought like that. So it can be a, become a very crowded space to figure out what to do. And I'll give you a perfect example. We were just looking at a, a headwall project for a large healthcare system. So the, the trend in healthcare is that you don't just put your headwall, so where your medical gases, your oxygen, all of your critical infrastructure, you don't just put that in drywall. You make it a little bit of something nicer. So there are companies out there like Dirt that manufacture headwall modules. And we're going through a bid and we're asking the questions, well, there's a lot of gases in these walls. There's a lot of power in these walls, much more than standard. How did we get there? And the answer was they had a design symposium with all of the heads of nursing from all the departments and said, you've been living in this world for the last 20 years. How would you want to see it done differently? And that kind of happens in every space in healthcare. And and the thing that we never forget, and we make sure that if it's whether we're building dirt walls in a in a clinical space or we're just putting furniture in a clinical space, the stakes are incredibly high. It's it's not like, you know, hey, we, we built our office space wrong and Paige is going to be unhappy about the way her desk is oriented because right. the sun hits her incorrectly. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about life-saving capabilities. So it becomes a much more high-stakes decision-making process and design process. But at the end of the day, it's a much more rewarding project because you understand the impact that you've actually made to folks that are sick and to the folks that are helping them. I would say, I think, and probably in healthcare and across many companies, post-pandemic, the voice of the employee has been so crucial to see what actually matters to them and their experience and the impact that their workplace or their headwalls are going to have on their job is huge right now. And it's, to be quite honest, it's really something that's hard to quantify in a report or with a percentage. Just like if you walk into a really, really des- well-designed house, it makes you feel better. You're not sure why, but mm-hmm. it makes you feel better. It's tough to quantify that to a, a healthcare system that at the end of the day has to report to their shareholders and make sure that they're profitable and doing really good healthcare work. So that's always a little bit of a conflict in those design discussions among many other that that happen. But I think the thing that, that healthcare systems are asking us more for now is we don't know what the future holds. 10 years ago, we had no idea that telehealth would be the thing that we're talking about. Or 10 years ago, we had no idea that maybe now we're thinking about how can this very simple patient room be changed into a high acuity COVID room when the next thing like that comes down the line. So I think a thing that that a lot of the healthcare systems and, and doctor's offices are thinking about is how do we design a space and build a space with the understanding that we don't know what the future holds and that if we need to pivot, we don't want to have to, as an example, send everybody home for two months while we rebuild our space. So how can you design in flexibility, modularity, and the ability to change direction on a dime to better serve your patients? I think that's what a lot of folks are talking about right now in healthcare. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And to pivot a little bit, you know, because you have a commercial real estate background, right? You know, so you you understand maybe a little bit of the ecosystem, maybe more than typical, you know, furniture executive, we'll call it. Sure, sure. Um, You know, what do you think from an office space standpoint, right? There's been a lot said about urban downtown real estate, suburban real estate. We've seen it in this market, a bigger trend towards suburban real estate, talking about convenience, talking about amenities, things like that. I mean, where do you see your clients migrating, you know, in that, in that, that picture, right? And what can be done for some of these downtowns that historically been these major office centers that are, I mean, honestly, they're all really struggling. I don't know a downtown in America that's not struggling pretty dramatically from an office vacancy standpoint. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I think statistically, yeah, probably most of our work right now is not happening in, a, in the downtown office core. But at the same time, you've got, you know, 
there's a very large national law firm that I was just doing a site walk for this morning at the Salesforce Tower. So you probably know this better than me, but I feel like there are certain industries that are always going to want that, that quote unquote downtown presence. And then there are certain industries where they're going, maybe I'm not recruiting someone right out of school that wants to live on Mass Ave. Maybe that's not our, our team member population. And maybe most of them live on the north side or the south side or the west side. And like you said, as a way to make it more convenient, you no longer have to drive an hour and fight traffic. Maybe you're only driving 20 minutes and that's going to make you come to the, the office space 2x more a week or 6x times more a, a month. On, on our side, selfishly, what I always think about is, you know, if, if we're delivering materials and installing them into a building, it's never harder than in a tower downtown. Sure. That's going to just adds cost. It adds cost and complexity. Now, maybe that's not the, the driving factor, but um, that's something we think about all the time. At the end of the day, we're we're less involved in that process of where of they're course. picking a space. We're more reactive and saying, you've picked this space. Where do you want to go? You certainly pick up insights. Oh, yeah. Right. You know, because you're kind of seeing the back end of the decision. You're kind of getting that metadata, right? To say, huh, this is an interesting trend. Yeah. And, and right. usually how that goes is you're touring a space with a client and you've got two people in the back going, this was the stupidest decision ever. Who made this decision? Why are we here? And then you've got three people at the front going, this view is amazing. I can't wait to walk to Shake Shack down the street and go get a beer at the Eagle. And and our job is to make sure that we kind of hit that middle ground and try and make everybody happy, just like a real estate broker, right? You're always kind of playing that game. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a real, it's a real interesting dynamic because law firm tenants, and we've worked with a number of the large ones as well, both here in Indianapolis, as well as nationally, I mean, they're still hugging towards downtown course, right? And that's always been curious to me because they have not been immune from the worker shortage, right? Sure. I mean, you, you're in a unique position because you went to law school as well, right? So you know a lot of those people probably from school that are lawyers, right? And you know, part of their problem, a lot of it from a talent acquisition standpoint was 15 years ago, no one went to law school. 10 years ago, you know, from 08 yeah. to, yeah. I don't know. I don't know when their law applications start picking up. When again. I was in law school, that was a big discussion. How do we get more folks here? Yeah. Right. Right. And so they're kind of still embracing from that, but it's interesting to me that they've continued to maintain that. Is that part prestige? Is that part brand? I tend to think, yes, I've never, ever kind of nailed the answer to it, but there is something about law that kind of demands a different type of environment. And I guess, you know, the business is built around a lot of hours. Yeah. You know, it's, it's how to say this tactfully. It's always a, a interesting discussion when you have a, a customer paying top dollar for rent in a very prestigious building. And then they come to you with inspiration images of like 1980s wood cladded desks. <laughs> and you go, well, something's getting lost in translation here because you've got this amazing space where you can recruit those folks from the IU law school, the Notre Dame law school, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera but the, the feel of your space maybe isn't going to match that. So maybe let's leave that old school wood paddling for the paneling for the lobby and let's make your private office something really nice. But I mean, you're exactly right. When, when I was interning for a law firm here in, in downtown Indianapolis, most of what you would see then, and I have to think it's even more so now you've got an attorney in his, in, in his or her office dictating into their dictation machine. You've got their legal assistant and paralegals kind of outside their office reacting to all that information. So if that's the case, What's keeping that attorney from doing that at their home? And and I've even heard of some attorneys and some real estate brokers saying, hey, uh, if I'm not going to come to the office, can I make a little bit more money? You're not paying for my desk. Sure. Let's have that conversation. And that's the last conversation any manager, I think, probably wants to have. 
Well, and I think when you talk to the managing partners of those firms and their their opinions vary, but I think a number of major law firms talking with their managing partners, you know, they really believe in the apprenticeship part of the business, right? Where senior partners have junior and senior associates that need that access to that wealth of knowledge that's been built up over 25, 30, 40 years in some cases to that senior practice partner that's done it all, seen it all. And you're usually working late hours, right? And so a lot of it is is different, but I definitely have seen them really chart, start changing the look of their offices away from what I keep call, call a country club yeah. look, right? Because they realize it was very isolating when you bring in more progressive thinking, young attorneys or young, you know, JD graduates, right? Looking for their first associate position and they come into it and they feel like they're coming into their grandpa's office, right? which, you know, is a big shift at the same time, you know, they're not getting away from private offices. They're not getting away from, you know, kind of the, the work workplace layout that historically has held firm. The only thing I've seen change over the last 10 years is the elimination of law libraries. Sure. That totally makes sense because everything's digital. And, and, and that's why every business is different. You can't put 10, 15 high performing attorneys in an open office setting and expect that they're going to be happy. They need that private office. So that discussion's right out the window. But I, I think the thing that I'm hearing you say that, that we tell clients a lot, and, and again, it's a, it's a sales line and a consultative line that until you live it, you aren't sure how true it is. And then you live it and you realize it's 100% true. There are a lot of industries where you have to have that mentorship and rubbing shoulders. You know, you're going to a deposition as an attorney, you ride with your senior mentor, that 20 minute car ride back, you're asking him or her questions. Why did you say that? What did that mean? How did we get there? Why didn't you do this? Why did you do that? If you're doing a team's call, that doesn't happen. And I know when I was in commercial real estate, that's how I learned. I would just go to meetings with my senior mentors and hear what they say and hear how they consulted clients and then ask them questions. That's the same way I learned the furniture business and the interior construction business. So if, if you lose that, you're losing something that's really valuable. Right. Well, most jobs, you can't, you can't do a master class. You can't, you know, you can't just read a book, right? Commercial real estate's a great example. You, you were a broker. I mean, big part of the reason you know, our team and we decided the strategy to, you know, build a schedule that people came in and really encourage people as part of their development, especially junior brokers was you need to learn through osmosis, right? And you need to be there and you never know what opportunities are going to come at you because, you know, I tap somebody on the shoulder saying, Hey, you're coming to meet this meeting with me. I forgot to tell you, but we're going to pitch a client. Don't worry. Like we'll just, you know, wing it. Right. And what does that turn in? It could turn into something huge. It, exactly. You never know. Well, and right. I think it goes past just brokers. Like I started, you know, in the middle of all this, if I was just remote uh, coming from a completely different retail mm-hmm. world to commercial real estate, I would have no idea what I was doing. We're in a position where our team is growing. We're adding people. We have to be in the office to have that collaboration. It makes me a little nervous for all these companies who are fully remote because what is their company going to look like in 10 years when all of those quote unquote mentors are retired and the people who are now running the companies are ones who started fully from remote. And, and what I'm hearing there is trust. I mean, mm-hmm. we get home and I hear the, I hear the laughs for, you know, from the back of the house <laughs> when you get all your whole team is texting each other yeah. and you go, that's a high level of trust. You don't get that without having in-person interaction. And if you don't have that high level of trust, how are you going to collaborate and make things happen and succeed? And I think that's, that's really important. And it's another thing that's hard to quantify. It's hard to, if someone doesn't believe that it's hard to change their mind until they live it. Yeah. Well, and it's culture, your values. I think a lot of companies and and even our team and, and our firm has gone through that, 
you know, through COVID, right? Cause you strip away something that, you know, is fundamental to everybody. And then you have to really look in the mirror, right? And you kind of have to take an inventory and we did a big, big kind of rewrite and we published them to the team. And then we make all of our hiring decisions based on those values, and those goals. And everyone's plan is built around that. And it's really important to do that because if you're hybrid or you're not in the office every day where it can be kind of propagandized and I use that word, it sounds negative, but you know, you walk into major corporate headquarters, what do they have on the walls, right? Values and mission. And I mean, that's propaganda, right? That's what it is, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, But you know, if you're not getting that blast in your face every day, how else are you getting it? One thing we're telling clients with, with workplace, when we do workplace strategy is you have to become deliberate with your communication methods as senior leaders, right? You have to be very deliberate. You have to be very concise and you have to consistently reinforce them. Yeah. So I, I was recently reading a management book that my, uh, my old man is uh, one of 20 that are probably sitting on my desk that I failed to read, but this <laughs> one I did read. And one of the quotes went something like, if you're a CEO, you're not actually the chief executive officer. You're the CRO. You're the chief reminder officer, because unless you're blasting whatever message you think is important every day to your people, they're going to forget it. And what I think we would say in, in the contract furniture and, and prefabricated interior construction world is what you do with your space is also something that's sending a message. If you sat in a meeting with us and, and said, I love what you guys put together. I'm not spending that money. It's not worth it to me. That message is going to be heard by your employees, by your team members. Now, that's not to say that you should write us a blank check and let us do whatever we want because we're really good at saying, hey, I know you said you want the Eames Lounge. You actually don't. Right. You want to get four of these for the same cost and and you're going to get 85% of the cool with 25% of the cost. We're really good at targeting where you should spend money. But at the end of the day, you don't want that message to be management team just checked a box for our space and, and they don't really care if we're happy here. I don't care what graphics you slap on the wall or what engagement survey you send someone. When the rubber meets the road, you have to be messaging the right things. Yeah, that's true. All right, Scott, we got a few questions we ask all of our guests. All right. And it doesn't have to be like business related, but what are you, what are your top things you're streaming right now? Top things I'm streaming. What shows, what, what, maybe it's a YouTube channel. It can be a podcast. Yeah. What's on your what's on your go to queue right now? So I've got I've got two things that I'm streaming right now. One that I get yelled at all the time to turn it <laughs> off, and the other one that I will uh, Paige and I will watch together. So the first one is you know when I'm doing that 5 a.m. bottle for our eight month old daughter, and I get done, I turn on a YouTube channel and I watch a, a YouTube channel called Daily Driven Exotics. So it's a bunch of guys who. Oh, you, I know that channel. Yeah, I'm a big car guy. It's great. So I, I grew up being a big car guy, and then I realized how hard it was to make money and how expensive cars are, and I kind of went, "Nah, I'll just watch." Yeah, I'm not. I'm you know, I'm never going to buy a Lamborghini, but I'll, I'll watch a guy buy one. So I really enjoy uh, watching that. It's just kind of fun, 20 minute videos that are lighthearted about um, cars. Let's just clarify that about cars. I watch daily, a ton of those daily yes. driven exotics. Yes, yeah, so the exotics are cars. The, the automobiles. <laughs> yes, daily driven exotics. Hoovy's Garage. Doug Demuro. I don't know if you yep. get those Demuro, guys. Stradman. Stradman. Hamilton oh, Collection. Geez. Wrench every day. Yeah. They're, they're, um, it's fun. The one I'm into right now is Patina Collective. Okay. It's a bunch of guys in South Florida. I have no idea where their money comes from, but they're assembling the most amazing collection of, you know, one of one Mercedes from the eighties and nineties, the pre-merger AMGs, the Koenig specials, the yeah. carrot editions they're importing from the middle East and Europe. And it's like car porn. 
Yeah. You know, right. And it's like, I didn't even know that existed. Mind blown. Right. Well, and I grew up at the time where my older brother and I would, you know, run down in the basement and play Gran Turismo on PlayStation three for oh, six, yeah. for six hours at a time and then get in a fight when I unplugged it. Cause he was about to win a race. So, um, <laughs> so we see all these YouTube channels and we go, Ooh, uh, Nissan GTR right-hand drive JDM import. I had that in Gran Turismo. That's pretty right. cool. And it's kind of interesting seeing those cars that you thought were terrible eighties beaters now becoming classic cars. So that's one thing I'm, I'm streaming right now. The other thing that we're streaming that's more of a family time, I guess, <laughs> my wife and I, a show called Alone. I don't know if you've heard of this show. She mentioned it. I yeah, have, because I've been talking about of it all course, the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. It's great. Yeah, you, you get 10 people and you throw them into a uh, very extreme survival scenario and say whoever can last the longest alone, whoever can last the longest wins, what is it, a million bucks, 500 grand, 500. something like that. And you know, we just kind of sit there on our couch, 72 degrees under a blanket, eating Uber <laughs> Eats, going, these guys are idiots. So I, I think could you could last so a year, better. which I'm like, there's no chance no. you could last no, a year. I said, I said, if I had a shelter, if I had an iPad, an internet connection, well, and food, I could last a year. Well, sure. Yeah, right. anyone that's could. The hard, that's the hard part. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's kind of funny because you know they'll, they'll start the, the challenge and two days in, some guy will be crying going, I miss my wife and my kids. You're like, well, dude, you knew, what did you think you were doing? You know? <laughs> What, what are you doing? You need here? to get so, on alone, Andrew. What's that? You need to start watching uh, it. Yeah, I'll try. It's an in, it's an interesting. I think okay. it's on Hulu. All of my all of the things that I watch are uh, man. I've got enough stress at work. I yeah. want to come home and unwind. just unwind. Yeah, yeah. What are you listening to right now? Music oh, wise, music wise. Well, on the way to daycare this morning, I listened to "Shake It Off" by Taylor Swift seven <laughs> times in a row oh, because that was the request of the two year old. Yeah. Um, I guess it could be worse. Um, <laughs> The music I listened to was mostly like Southern California reggae rock. Gotcha. You know, 311, Revolution, Slightly Stupid. Don't even know if anybody... I know, ska bands, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, Dirty Heads, that type of stuff. Got it. Yeah. That's very chill. Yeah. Very chill. I like that. (laughs) Okay, you talked about a book you just read. You got 20 others on your desk. What's a book recently? It doesn't have to be like in recent memory, but it could be a book that's had a major impact on you and the way you look at the world and business. Oh gosh, I'm going to go all the way back to a leadership conference or event I went to as a junior at DePaul University at the Delta Tau Delta House. They sent us to a leadership conference in Maine where you go to a, uh, you live on a dual masted schooner, a wood sailboat in Penobscot Bay, Maine for a week with folks, with folks all from around the country, the different chapters of your fraternity and you learn leadership lessons. And in that event, the the kind of leading literature was Stephen Covey. Of course. The seven yeah. habit, Habits of Highly Effective People. So I always say things to this day like sharpen your sword. And th- mm-hmm. those are like the little things that I picked up from from that book. You know, it's maybe not impacting me every day, but it's something that, you know, I'll, I'll sit there and go sharpen your sword. And someone's like, where the hell? What? Where yeah, did you get that it's from? Covey, it's Covey, man. Like, yeah, it's Covey. So that and Harry Potter. In other words, yeah. you need to read those 20 books. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, did, I feel like Donald Trump right now where you say, hey, well, all the books are all book? good. Like, oh, the books are great. I love reading. It's amazing. Bible. I can't Next. pick out yeah. my favorite verses. Yeah. They're all good. Yeah, they're, they're all, all good. good. That's right. Yeah, your dad's going to be like, so you need to get reading. Yeah. <laughs> well, some of those are good, right? Like I read a lot of, I read a lot, period. Business books, non-business books. I read a lot of nonfiction, a lot of fiction. And I always joke when you're reading business books, it's almost like you got to, you're just trying to get those one or two nuggets. Right. Right. It's not like I don't like read the chief reminder things. officer versus the CEO. That's a little nugget I picked up. Don't remember what chapter it was in, but Hey, it doesn't matter, but yeah. it's valuable. Right. Yeah. 
So it's interesting, especially in a world where everything's kind of on us really quick, right? It's kind of good sometimes to read something through. I'm reading one of the business books I'm reading right now is called Workquake. Okay. I think you might find it interesting. It was by the head of uh, HR for LinkedIn and Oracle and talks about COVID, kind of everything we talked about today, but puts it in more of an HR perspective. So I thought it was really fascinating. When I'm done with it, I'll work uh, quake. Work quake. Yeah, send it home with Paige. I'll send it home with Paige. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a reading list. It'll be 21 in the list. list. So the one, the one reading story that when when my old man always gets on me for not reading the books he sends my way, I always drop this story and I say, you know, outside of work, a lot of the things that I consume aren't necessarily work specific. They're just making me a more well-rounded, generally educated, but some of the things aren't have no value at all. But so when I was a real estate broker. We're, we're going to a, a dinner with a large investor client and my senior mentor says something like, Hey man, like I know at lunch today you were talking about aliens like <laughs> for an hour. Like, Can we just cap that? With these yeah. investors, like not the guys for that. And we get to this really, really nice dinner. And one of the investors starts talking about how he just went to Joshua tree for a week and Joshua camped alone awesome. to have silent time and to recenter himself. But, and then he mentioned aliens. And you're like, and I took over the conversation for 30 minutes. So I'm like, not everything has to be a, you know, a perfectly kind of pointed and targeted uh, work literature. I just kind of like having a bunch of different things I can talk about. Got to be well-rounded. That's how you sharpen your sword, right? Hey, there you go. Got it. There you go. Joshua Tree is amazing if you haven't been. I have have not. I've never been. I'd love to. It is awesome. So. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming in today, man. It's been great. Hey, great. having you on. Great to talk to you guys. It's always fun to... uh, to chop it up with other folks that are seeing the same things we're seeing and, and live in the, the process of trying to get folks into nicer spaces and make their work like, you know, really nice. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks Scott. We'll hopefully we'll bring you back on soon. Give us an update on, and, and we're excited to see your new showroom at some point. Yeah, maybe we'll have Hopefully to do here. a remote podcast from the new Officeworks and Bolt showroom here in the next several months. Did you put a podcast room in it? You know, we've got a couple rooms that are highly outfitted with acoustic material to make it really high-performing acoustic rooms that we could easily do something. We're like se- I'm seeing that as a trend right now for HQs. Uh, media rooms are becoming much more common yeah. in there. And so I was curious because we'd love to come up there and maybe have a little roundtable discussion with some some of your different thought leaders and talk about what they're saying. That'd be a great episode. Hey, that sounds like fun. been talking with Scott O'Neill of Officeworks. Thank you, Scott, for coming in. And thank you to my producer, Paige, for running the board and making sure we stayed on time today. Thank you to our executive producer and audio wizard, Chris Spangle at leadersandlegends.net. Also, thank you to my co-host and producer, Paige O'Neill. And finally, thank you to Colliers International for providing us space to use as our recording studio in downtown Indianapolis. If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to like or follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Urban Foundry Podcast.